like with any job, you're not sure what you're going to get into the first couple of days, weeks, months, but it, it's, it's been amazing. It's, it's been more than I could have ever imagined. And, uh, you know, some days I'm not sure why I'm good at it, but um, I'm thankful that it's been working out and it's, it's been a, it's saved our family in so many different ways. So it's, it's been huge blessing to our family. Plan to fail. So you won't production will solve all your problems. Some will, some won't stop whining. So what? Just hit your weekly production goal. The weekend starts now. Our podcast this week is with Ryan Schellenberger. Ryan wears many hats. He is a lucky husband of his amazing wife, Julie, and parent to four wonderful children. He is also a high school math teacher and has been teaching for over 20 years. They love living in Colorado and are in awe of the amazing mountains and colorful sunsets. Ryan has been selling life insurance since 2009 and quickly moved up the production ranks, becoming the top producer one year and has finished in the top five every year. This is done part-time while teaching full-time and being an amazing father and husband. Ryan and his family are thankful for the opportunity and the rewards that this industry brings. Welcome, Ryan. Good morning. Welcome. Thanks for taking the time for being on here with us. Um, Let's start with just a real easy question, the easy end of things. What did you have for breakfast? I had a glass of lemon water. (laughs) How, How nutritious is that? You asked me on a very odd day. <laughs> yeah, lemon water and apple cider vinegar. That was my breakfast. Hey, awesome! I um, hear apple cider vinegar does uh, just about everything, cures cancer, and and all of the above. Yes, we we frequent that. We use it quite a bit, so it's our staple. Awesome! It tastes so good. Oh, right? Yeah. After the first three sips, you don't taste anything. I've done it once and went, yeah, I don't need that. Okay, now i got to ask you because it it came up um, because we're on on the ACV, if you will. Um, Do you just take a shot of it? Do you water it down and mix it with water, or does it go in your lemon juice, or how do you take it? Well, in the morning, we we mix it with lemon, uh, fresh-squeezed lemons, but um, at when we take it at night, it's we used to mix it with water, but that's just more you have to fight <laughs> down. So I just usually just put a little of the cup and just force it down and be done with it. So yeah, yeah. I I take a product called Natural Calm and it has magnesium in it and stuff. And I took some last night and I poured a little apple cider vinegar in there and I didn't quite add enough water and I just oh man. I was like, man, that tastes just like vinegar. And then I was forgot. I was like, oh, I'm going to add some more water and make this go down a little bit easier. So, yeah, it's it's rough. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. So, um, you're kind of a jack of all trades. So, if you were at a cocktail party with a bunch of strangers and they came up and they said, hey, we hear you're Ryan. Uh, what do you do for a living anyway? How do you respond to that? You know, I've identified as a high school math teacher for so long that that's usually my first response, and it's probably just not a habit. 
Um, and, and I do spend probably more hours doing that just due to, you know, the contract I have with the school. So I, I'm a high school math teacher. I teach three days a week, uh, and I've been doing that for over 20 years now. Uh, I love teaching. I love interacting with young people. Um, so that's, that's my job three days a week. Um, and, you know, if, if people press further and say, oh, well, what do you do the other days? I'll answer, but I usually just leave it at that. Um, but obviously the other days I, I sell life insurance one to one and a half days a week. Um, and those are, those are my jobs outside of, you know, being a husband, a father, and, and all the other things that comes that all of us have with, with being a part of a family. Now, paint us a little picture as to high school math teacher. I think of, um, you know, geometry and stuff like that, but you're teaching some pretty high level math and, uh, kind of tell us about the school that you teach at too. Sure. Yeah. What I teach changes not every year, but every couple of years. Um, so, uh, this year I'm teaching honors pre-calc next year. I'm teaching algebra two. So it, it changes year to year. Um, but the school I, I teach at, it's a pretty large school. There's almost 3,000 students. So it's, it's a city in and of itself. Um, but it's, I, I love teaching. I love, like I said, interacting with the young kids and trying to get them um, excited about math and, and getting them to have that light bulb moment where before they were really confused on a particular math topic, and now all of a sudden when you, when you see them get it, you know, the expression, it's the same every time, but it's, it's, it's why you do it. It's, you're wanting to make that connection and get them excited about it. While, whereas they go from, you know, being lost or being frustrated to getting it, and it's such a, a cool aha moment. So, Now, do you see a, a different mindset with a bigger school like that? And Keep in mind, I came from a school where the whole school was 300 kids, um, and I went to Catholic school, and it, the grading scale was a little bit harder um, compared to the public school. But do you see a different mindset? I mean, that's a ton of kids. You know, there. I'm sure it's different. I mean, you don't know every kid in the school and the kids don't know every kid in the school. And I don't honestly even know all the teachers in the school. I mean, that sounds weird, but you know, I'll know their face, but I couldn't tell you their name or what they teach. There's just so many. Um, but I, I, my situation is probably more similar to yours as far as what I experienced. I grew up, you know, in private school and where our graduating class had a hundred kids. And so you knew everybody, you knew every teacher. My dad taught at the school. So it was a very close knit situation but in the bigger school um kids there's so many different ways for kids to get involved so they sort of form their own little community groups within the school whether it be in their art class or pottery class or they're involved in band or in a sports or in you know the marching band there's so many different ways for kids to get involved and, and make it a little bit smaller and it, it just shrinks the radius quite a bit in you know, they get their domain that they're comfortable with inside of this big, larger organism. So it, it, if you don't do that, then, yeah, you can easily get lost. And that's that, that's where kids struggle is that when they don't feel connected. But I think that's true, true of all of us outside of school or inside of school is that we all do better when we're connected to other people in smaller groups. Do you enjoy the challenge of a, a new um 
curriculum every couple of years. I think um, most teachers want to build their lesson plans and just do that same thing over and over for the next 40 years. But if they're uh, making you bounce around, is that uh, a welcome challenge? Um, you know, the, the longer you teach, the more you realize that nothing is going to stay the same. There's no such thing as I just want to get my curriculum in place and do it for 30 or 40 years and, and call it a career. It's just not possible. Uh, whether it be expectations from the state or from the school or a new principal uh, or state testing, there, there's always something new that we're incorporating in and weaving into what we've done, and there's good to that. I mean, sometimes it's frustrating that it feels like we're reinventing the wheel. But the good part about that is it keeps you fresh. It keeps you always thinking. And they've done studies, actually, where when you do the same thing in teaching like that, where you don't change things year to year to year, you actually get more stale and you're less effective. So it would be nice to just put it on autopilot and do the same thing every single year. Uh, but that's not good for kids, and, and that would actually get quite boring. Um, and every year, the, obviously, the kids are different, but you, you form different connections with the kids. And, you know, you get a culture within the classroom and, you know, little inside jokes within that classroom that are unique to that class that you sort of build upon and roll throughout the semester and incorporate the math. So it's, it's always a, a living being, and it, it just never stays the same. If, if you hope that that's going to happen, you're going to be frustrated every year because – Different principle, different laws, different. It's just different every year. So now I don't want to get too political, but uh, do you have a comment on Common Core math? All I know is what I've seen on Facebook or online, so I don't really know a whole lot about it. But I figured you'd be the person you know, to ask. Yeah, it hasn't. Um, I want to say it hasn't affected us that much. Uh, where we probably did the biggest changes with the legislation that was called race to the top. And basically the federal government said, okay, we have these funds we're going to give out to the top. I can't remember the number five states. And here's the criteria. And some of the criteria changed, some of it stayed the same. And so all these states uh, were all of a sudden chasing the same money. Well, chasing the same money means you, you have to do their standards, whether it's Common Core, or do their state testing and have this much participation. You know, there, there's all these different criteria. Well, all these states are jumping through all these hoops, and only five get the federal money, the extra federal money. So at the end of it, if you got the money, you're like, oh, that was great. But if you didn't, you're sitting there going, well, we did all that, and it was, it was for naught. I mean, we're, we're not just not better off. We're actually worse off because now we have less funding. So... That's where I say, you know, education is never going to be the same because there's always new laws. There's somebody new trying to hopefully do something good, whether it is effective or not, or has unintended consequences that hurt education. I know in our state they've changed the Tabor laws, and we used to get a lot of funding from Tabor. Uh, but, you know, a couple politicians went in and um, redid the language on it, and now basically our school in every district in the state has tens of millions of dollars less in funding. And so, you know, you can't go to your clientele, the parents, and say, well, we can't do a good of, as good of a job because we have a lot less funding, we have a lot less staffing, we have less programs. They still expect the same level of education, which why shouldn't they? But when you're doing it on 
so much less money, it just makes it more of a challenge. And so your class sizes get bigger. Some programs get cut. You, you know, your salary gets frozen, less increase. You know, there's just, it goes across the board. Um, but every new law or every new idea, sometimes they're good, sometimes they're not. And, you know, sometimes you don't know until it's run its course and go, man, that really hurt us, actually. So... So you're a math teacher. You enjoy doing it. Um, you work at a nice big school. Why and how did you get into selling insurance? Tell us that story. Sure. Well, my brother, um, he started doing it. And when he first started doing it, I'm like, you're doing what? You're selling insurance? I go, all right. And I just sort of rolled my eyes a little. I was like, you know, let's see how this goes. Well, then he would call me and go, man, here's what I did this week. So I'm like doing the math going, wait, you worked how many days and made what? He goes, yeah, I did, I did. we'll see if it really comes through. But he really got paid and it really worked. And he kept doing it and kept doing it. Um, and so I, I sort of got a bird's eye view just to be able to watch it evolve in, in him um, and then he started, you know, giving me access codes to listening to conference calls. And so then I, I would just, you know, I, I wanted to learn more about this to see what this is all about. Cause it was making such an impact on his life. Uh, cause he went from being an elementary school teacher, making very little money to making really good money selling insurance. So I would listen to the conference calls and, and start to get a flavor of what it was all about. Uh, he sent me CDs to listen to, and this is before I ever even wanted to pursue it. I just wanted to know what was this about. So I tried to educate myself on what selling insurance was about. And I listened to the CDs and uh, listened to the conference calls and heard how he was doing. And I probably did that for six months to a year before I ever even tried to get into it. And so at that time, I, uh, the marketing organization he was with, I, I said, well, I'd like to give this a try part-time. And um, their experience had been that, that that was not a successful way to sell insurance and that, you know, anybody who tried to do it part-time, it, it just never worked out. So they weren't, um, they weren't open to that because of experience saying that it wouldn't work. And I understand that. Um, and, and so then a little bit later, I don't remember the exact time frame, six months later or so, the opportunity came that I could try to do it full-time over the summer. And so I started doing it and, um, like with any job, you're not sure what you're going to get into the first couple of days, weeks, months, but it, it's, it's been amazing. It's, it's been more than I could have ever imagined. And, uh, you know, some days I'm not sure why I'm good at it, but um, I'm thankful that it's been working out and it's, it's been a, it's saved our family in so many different ways. So it's, it's been huge blessing to our family. I want to come back to that uh, in a minute here, but um Explain to me a little bit how that that six months of you were actually training yourself and you didn't even know it really. I mean, you were listening to the recordings, you're listening to the CDs, you're listening to the training just because you were interested in it. Um, how did that come about? Did you just pop it in your car to and from work? How did that happen? Yeah, for the CDs, you know, Logan would send me a few, and, and I would listen to them as I was driving. And looking back on it, it was really 
the perfect situation because there was no pressure for me to all of a sudden have to apply it immediately. I, I was able to listen to it, have it soak in, you know, and then you start turning it over in your mind. Why do they say this? What's this about? And then I could also listen to conference calls of people who were selling and listen to their struggles, their successes, you know, tips on how to um, uh, do things better. And it was perfect for my personality because uh, I'm the type of person I put a lot of pressure on myself. And uh, I'm competitive and I, I want to do well and I want to provide for my family. And looking back, if I had had all that pressure while I was also trying to sell policies and learn the business, maybe I would, still would have done great. Uh, but it was actually really good for me that I could learn that without all the pressure of getting it right and getting it right really quickly. So it was it was the perfect immersion into the business for me. Um, yeah, and, and I guess you're right. I, I was sort of educating myself on what the process was and what selling was and what the business was in a very slow, comfortable, relaxed way because I never thought I was going to do it. I mean, in my mind, I was thinking I wasn't doing it just for the fun of it, listening to all the CDs. In my mind, I was going, well, if I could make this work, what is this about? But I never understood how could I make this work and still teach. So there was always the hope that I could do it, but I never connected the dots of how to make both work. Ryan, when you came out and rode with me, when you trained with me, uh, one of the questions I always ask uh, whoever's in my car is, you know, why? Why are you doing this? And, and you know, your answer still sticks very, very, you know, clear in my mind because that's been almost 10 years ago, it seems like, maybe not quite, but pretty close to that. Um, most people, oh, I'm, I'm sick of my job. I hate my job. Um, I want to make more money. Those are the kind of comments I usually get. And, and you said, um, well, I love my job. I get paid very, very well to do it. Um, and I'm just looking for something, you know, in addition to that. And you have been extremely successful in this business, not kind of successful, extremely. You've been one of our top producers. Uh, you're always one of our top producers. You're in the top probably one, two, or three. Um, why you're still teaching, why you're still being a, an excellent father, an amazing husband. Um, talk about that a little bit. Uh, our, our listeners would be intrigued to understand how you keep all those plates spinning and do it all so well. Um, well, thank you. I, sometimes I think it's dumb luck, but it, it can't be dumb luck for too long. But I, I think I've always done that. I, You know, in teaching in the beginning, when you're first a teacher, you, you don't get paid great. I mean, you, you do fine. You know, I don't want to paint the picture of the teachers of these poor, you know, people who can't make ends meet. You, you're not making a ton of money as a teacher, but you're paying the bills. But I've always, while I've been teaching, worked other jobs. And all through college, I worked two to three jobs to pay for college. So I, I think I've always always had multiple jobs. So I guess when selling came along, this was just, well, should I try selling and teaching or teaching and all the other things I was doing? Because before I did selling, the other jobs I had was I would teach, and then I would coach cross-country, I'd coach track, and I worked at REI, which is a sporting good retailer, um, as well. So I've always had two to three jobs. And so this, I guess, for me was just a transition to say, well, I'm no longer going to work at REI. I'm no longer going to coach. And instead, I'll put that time and energy towards selling insurance. So it wasn't a big shift for me as far as picking up another job. It was more just transferring uh, my time and energy from one to another. But, uh, yeah, I've always, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. I guess it's, you know, my dad taught in a private school, and, again, 
he was paid. He was able to raise five kids, and we we were never rich, but we never went without. But all of us kids knew that the expectation was you're going to go to college, and you got to figure out how to pay for it. I never questioned that ever. It was never, how am I going to pay for this, or do I have to go to college? I don't know. They never said it. It was it was weird. All of us kids talk about that after the fact, and we, we all knew that college was the next step. And as far as paying for it, well, figure it out. <laughs> so I guess from an early age, we had that work ethic instilled in us to work hard and, and figure it out. Um, did you have college loans or did you cash flow it? Uh, both. I, I worked two to three jobs all through college, um, and I also had to take out loans. So, you know, you, you, I couldn't make enough working to pay for it all. So at some point you had to take out loans, but yep, both of those. So as you're entering into this business and um, like you said, you had other jobs, but now you're entering into this new business and you said it's just a transfer of time and energy, but there's also this big lead cost. Um, How, and you're really good at math. So how did you, (laughs) look at this saying, okay, I've got to transfer my time and energy to this new thing and spend a bunch of money on top of it. And just at the chance to maybe make a little extra money. How did you justify that in your mind? You know, that's probably the, for me, the most difficult part about this business. Uh, you know, Jim, you hit it correctly that um, it's been 10 years since I rode with you uh, almost exactly 10 years. And Probably seeing Logan go before me and have success put me at ease a little bit more. Uh, but even today, every time I order leads, I, my stomach gets in knots, and I'm like, man, this is a lot of money. And because of that, I don't order enough leads. <laughs> it makes the job harder for me. Um, and I need to at some point in my life get past that. But it works out. I mean, Bill Russell said it best once at one of our conferences. He says, if for every time somebody gave you gave somebody a quarter, they gave you a dollar, how many quarters would you give them? You know, and getting past that, man, I just spent $700 on leads and, and having to stomach that. Well, yes, but that lead is going to generate into $4,000 worth of business. So uh, that's my biggest struggle. I hate ordering leads. I hate putting out that cost. Um but I never seem to hate it when the money comes into the account, but obviously they're tied together. <laughs> and you might talk about too, um, because for the people who do this full time, it might be a little bit easier to always order the exact same amount of leads every two weeks or whatever. Um, how do you kind of bounce around and order the right, like you said, you don't order enough leads, but order the right amount of leads to be successful, um, even though you do it part-time, how did you have to kind of scale that around off of the, the numbers that either Logan or we started you out with? Yeah, in the beginning when I first started out, uh, you know, one of the questions I asked Jim on the ride-along was, you know, we talked about different types of sales, and some sales you really have to work for, and some are we call laydowns. And so the question I asked Jim, and I don't know if you remember this, Jim, I said, you know, if I order 1,000 leads and get 30 leads back, how many of those are laydowns? And, you know, he said, oh, you'll probably get usually about two to three laydowns. I don't remember the exact number. And so I did the math and said, okay, if it's $50 a sale, and if I'm, you know, a monkey can go in there and get a sale, 
am I at least going to break even? And that's also sort of what put my mind at ease with ordering leads, is that you're going to have people that are going to buy when you walk into the house no matter what. It's not because you're a great salesman. It's because their uncle just died, they need it, you know, whatever the case may be. So that put my mind at ease a lot, too, knowing, well, there's always going to be some laydowns, and that will at least cover my lead costs. Um, but as far as knowing what to order and when to order, you know, some of it was Jim taught me how to or taught all of us how to go on to look up different zip codes and what the median income is and what the age is and really to try to figure out what are good zip codes and, and not so good zip codes. And, of course, a lot of it after doing it a while is that you learn having gone through some zip codes, which ones are really good and which ones eh, you might not want to hit as much. Um, but that's been a, a work in progress. And as far as how to how frequently to order leads, um, I have bounced all over the board, not due to uh, doing that on purpose, uh, more just accidental. There's times I order every week a, a little bit, and there's other times I order, I'm just going to order for the whole month and get it done with all at once. And it doesn't seem to matter which method I use. Um, you know, this last month I ordered, I think, four to 5,000 leads all at once. So in the beginning when those come in, you're just running great and you have more leads than you know what to do with. And then as they slowly start trickling, the end of the month or the end of the time when those are um, getting worked pretty hard, you, you know, the pickings are a little slimmer, but it still works out until the next lead order comes in. So. To me, it doesn't matter whether I order them all at once or a couple every week. Uh, it works out the same. But that's, I mean, we're recording this uh, late March. Uh, well, I guess tomorrow is April 1st. So um, how how many more weeks of school do you have left? The countdown is on. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's always on, right? <laughs> right. We get out the end of May. Uh, and so this, you know, we just had spring break, and so we took the family to California for a week, and just it was a beautiful time of just having some time away because these next two months are going to be rough because school ends. Um, I have to renew my national boards, which is a lot of work, and I knew it was coming, but it's it's just now I got to really break down and do it. Um, we're going through foster care training, so that's two nights a week for five weeks um, where you have to go to classes to be trained. So this, these next two months are going to be really rough, and we sort of, you know, Julie, my wife, is really good at talking me through that, saying, now, Ryan, understand, we're going to be really busy, so if you only do 2,000, it's okay. We know this is coming. And, of course, in my mind, I'm like, no, we're going to do 4,000. <laughs> I can't do two. I've got to do four. So I put the pressure on myself, but it's uh, once school is out, once I've submitted my national boards, summer will come, and I'll be able to really – get back to uh, in my mind being less busy uh, but <laughs> yeah you sound less, absolutely... you sound less busy all right so well, it's not less busy now but summer will be i hope <laughs> <laughs> all right so um this will be a kind of a two or three part question here but uh you spent six months to a year just considering the business and how you might be able to do it um so First of all, when did you finally realize this is it? Like this is what can help supplement my my teaching income. Um, but then part two, you know, how did that uh, save your family? And uh, you might touch on the the family part of it too. 
Sure. The you know, when did I realize that's a great question, and I'm probably not the the best one to talk to about that with my personality. But um, you know, I started off teaching full time. Uh, that's what I had always done, and so I would go out and sell uh, after school. And in in the summer, when you're not teaching, I had even more time to do it. Um, but as I found success with it, you know, I think I went one more school year teaching full time and selling insurance, and thought, "Wow, this is really going well. This is." better than I ever thought it could be. So then I went down to 80%, which means I teach four classes instead of five. And I thought, well, I can devote even more time to selling. Let's see how it goes. And that worked well. And I did that for a year or two, and then I moved only one year, and then I went down to 60%, which means I teach three classes or three days a week with we have an alternating block schedule. So that allows me to teach two days a week and sell uh, a day and a half or two days a week. Um, so that's been a, a slow transition of figuring out a good balance between the two. Um, but I've been doing that now for the past, I don't know, five, six, seven years of teaching three days, 60%, and then selling a day and a half or two. Um, and what was the second part of the question? How did that, um, how did insurance help save your family? You know, it's been a, uh, it's so many different levels. Um, you know, I think what really piqued my interest is when, you know, Logan was selling and he won a trip, I think it was to Costa Rica. And he came back and I go, all right, what did it really cost? He goes, nothing. And I had to park my car at the airport and, and any little trinkets or whatever we bought, there's nothing. I go, food? He goes, no, they pay for it all. And I'm just sitting there going, I don't know if ever in my whole life I'd ever go to Costa Rica, not because I want to or not want to, but it's just, you know, that's a lot of money. And so I'm sitting there going, he's getting paid really, really well, and he's getting these free trips. That intrigued me even more. Um, so the, the the trips that you earn in this business are just – I still, Julie and I, just almost pinch ourselves going, can you believe we're here? Uh, you know, last year we they sent us to Turks and Caicos, and, you know, ashamedly, I'm not sure I've ever even heard of it before this trip. And so we went there, and it was unreal. And they pay for everything. It is – I still can't believe they do this. And, you know, they, they sent us to the Bahamas, to Jamaica. It, it's phenomenal. So if you put in the time and energy and can be successful in this business, the, the trips are second to none. Uh, as far as saving my family, you know, that's helped our family – as far as just rejuvenating and connecting and, and setting aside that intentional time that, you know, what have we gone to those, you know, luxurious vacations outside of selling? No. What have we still taken vacations? Yes. They would have just been on a much smaller scale. Um, but as far as saving our family in other ways, you know, our family went through a time where we were all getting sick and we couldn't figure it out. Um, and it just kept getting worse and worse. And it, it took us a while, but Long story short, we had a small leak in our roof that we didn't know about, and it was contaminating the inside of our walls. And we never saw any evidence of it, uh, but in the end, our, our house was making us sick. So we, through that, lost everything. We, we threw away every single thing we owned, and we went to Target, bought a new set of clothes for each person, new toothbrushes, and that started our life over. So that part of it, uh, had I just been teaching, I don't know that we could have ever recovered from. 
because you think about throwing away the entire contents of your house, um, it, it's overwhelming. I, I can't even imagine what all of that added up to. But to replace things like, you know, you don't have spices in your rack, you don't have, you know, Q-tips, you don't have soap, you don't have, I mean, everything gone. And then we, in the next period of probably two years, lived pretty meagerly as we were trying to figure out how to get our bodies healthy, recovering from all the toxins we were under, and figuring out a place that we could live and not react to. So fast forward three and a half, four years from that event, uh, we ended up moving, I think it was 13 times in three and a half years. Um, we lived in a camper for six months to a year. We lived in a hotel. Um, and it was, it was mainly due to finding a place that we could call healthy for us that we wouldn't react to. And it's, it's been a combination of finding the right environment and also getting our bodies stronger. Uh, we still react um, to bad environments that most people wouldn't. And so we still have to be careful when we go places that when we feel our bodies reacting, we have to get out of there and support them. But it's been a long haul, and selling has provided us the income to be able to survive that without hitting bankruptcy. And hadn't I been selling, we probably would have claimed been bankrupt because there's just been no way to ever do it. So it, it saved us in so many ways. It's, I just can't imagine going through that with, without it. But And uh, you might, uh, how many, how many kids do you have? We have four kids. Um, yesterday, the oldest one turned 14. And our youngest one is five. And that's Trig, right? Uh, Tate is our youngest. Tate, that's right. Yeah, Trig is six and Grace is 11. Wow. Okay. So, um, and Trig had some some heart problems. When did that um, come about? Was that in the middle of all that moving or was that before? That was before, and, you know, we asked the doctor why, when he was born, um, everything was fine as far as we knew, and uh, when he was feeding, nursing, he would really struggle. Uh, He would be sweating, and, you know, that's the hardest work an infant does is when they're nursing. And so Julie mentioned it to the doctor and said he just seems to be really, you know, struggling and sweating and having to catch his breath, and so the doctor, thankfully, you know, looked further and sent us to a specialist, and uh, they found out that he had a hole in his heart. Well, upon more investigation, he actually had hundreds of holes in his heart. Um, The biggest one, they went in at three months old and plugged it with a a mesh type of plug. But when they plugged it, you know, water or blood takes the path of least resistance. So when they plugged it, it all of a sudden showed that there were all these other little holes. So they called it a Swiss cheese ventricle septal defect which just means he had a lot of holes in his heart. Um, After the surgery, they said, well, the little holes are small enough that he shouldn't be impacted, and hopefully they'll close as he gets older. And, you know, we go every year and have another uh, echo done, and some of the holes are still there, and they don't impact him negatively, and they might never fully close, or they might close. But right now it's, it's been pretty consistent the last I'd say two to three years that they're not getting bigger, they're not getting smaller, and he has no restrictions. So we we don't know what caused it. The doctors 
say, yeah, we don't know either. Was it the house we were in? Because Julie was pregnant and, you know, throughout her whole term in that house, maybe. And, you know, was it just something didn't form in him, correct, genetically in the womb? Maybe. Uh, we'll never know. I mean, obviously, we sort of lean to, we think it was that our house was making all of us sick. But, you know, none of our other kids had any issues, and he was the only one sort of um, born in that house. So it makes sense to us, but there's no way to prove it. What would you say to somebody who might be kind of in that similar situation as far as like their house, maybe they're, they're having some health problems and have no idea where it's coming from. Did you have testing done or how did you find out that this was what was causing things? Yeah, it took a while. And actually um, the tests are highly unreliable because they, you could do a mold test and have it come back clean and have it be wrong and you could do a mold test that just happens to catch a few spores in the air that might have been coming in through your windows and come back positive and, and actually not be a problem. So the, the tests aren't real great. We hired an industrial hygienist, and he sort of diagnosed our house without ever finding anything in the beginning, just based on our symptoms and that he was an expert in the field. And that was the hard part because, you, you know, you go through thinking, are we crazy? Are we being taken? Because for months, you know, they're tearing apart the house, and where we thought the problem was, there wasn't. And then we tear apart another part of the house, and there was no problem there. And so finally, after, boy, it felt like forever, because we were living in a camper. We couldn't live in our own house. They finally found it, and it was not even where we thought it was. It was in the ceiling of half of our house uh, that water had leaked in, and he was right all along. We didn't have the evidence in the beginning. We didn't have the positive tests. Uh, but once they finally found it, he was dead on. And so then they did testing, and, you know, everybody understands you say you had mold. They understand it. It was actually bacteria um, in the counselor through the roof of this certain type of mold or bacteria because uh, there's thousands of different types. And I, I couldn't even tell you which type we had other than it was making us sick. So, you know, if there's another family going through that, and uh, the hardest part about it was it didn't affect us all the same way. Um, it, it affected me as in I had um, sores all over my face, and my, my face would just start seeping clear liquid, and I'd get abscesses under my skin that the doctor would cut out going, that's weird. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I had those um, manifestations of it. You know, my wife had a lot of stomach and GI stuff, and, we all had brain fog where we couldn't think real clearly. Um, I'm trying to think. It's been a while. Uh, Trig, our, our heart patient, he had um, severe rashes all over his body, and it just it just looked like he got burned or, or somebody was hitting him. or something. It was just awful to look at. So it affected us all so differently, and that's the hard part about it. Is you would think that we're all being exposed to the same thing. We'd all react the same way. But it wasn't even close to that. Yeah, so if there's a family going through that, I mean, boy, it, it's tough because, you know, we, we've learned the hard way that, you know, we, we see other families who we wonder, man, they're exhibiting similar symptoms. You know, they have lung issues. They're getting bloody noses. And, but it might not be that. You know, our experience isn't everybody else's experience. 
But you know, I would just say if a family's getting sick and they keep getting sick and they can't get better, you might want to look at your environment. And now that you're away from it, um, do you see a, a night and day difference? Well, yeah, our health is much better. Um, we know what to look for, um, but we still, in talking, the thing that really helped us is we, we had a family, we became friends with a couple of them who went through this. So they were able to sort of guide us through this. And, you know, it was funny because in the beginning, when we first discovered it and moved out of our house, she says, uh, you know, our family, we've moved eight times, but that might not be your experience. And in the back of my mind, I'm going, that is not going to be my experience. You guys are crazy. I am not moving that many times. That's nuts. And she was, I was sort of right. We didn't move eight times. We moved 13. <laughs> um, but having another family to sort of walk us through it and know what to expect. Uh, and they've also told us, you'll get better, but you'll never be all better to the point where you won't react. So there's some homes I go into selling that I know right away, man, this home is really really making it tough for me. But I'm only in there for 45 minutes, um, you know, and you, you sort of know what to do to get yourself back on track. And, um, yeah, but finding a good environment for us has been it has been tough. But now that we have it, it's, it's nice to have a reprieve where we're not sick all the time. I want to go back a little bit to the trips and things. Um since you have a mathematical mind, um, you know, our, our companies pay us over a hundred percent and then they kind of lay on top these lavish trips and things like that. Um, I don't think we will ever fully understand our business, but how do you look at that and say, how are they, how are they doing this? How are they breaking even? Um, I, I can just imagine, I know my mind spins, but you've got a much better math mind than I do. How does this, how does this play out in your mind? You know, that's a question Logan and I have talked about for so long. And and I guess I've come to the place where, Insurance companies, you know, are in the business of making money. So if they paid us what they do and send us on these trips and weren't making money, they'd either go out of business or stop paying us what they do or sending us on these trips. So they're clearly making money and they're clearly successful. The best way I could describe the math of it, and, you know, we've asked a few of the companies and they've given us different time frames, like if the client keeps the policy for seven years, we're good. You know, so obviously you have some that keep it less and some that die sooner and some that keep it more. But they have it worked out and their actuaries have it worked out that they're doing fine. Um, There's also plenty of people we've all had. You sell a policy and the person keeps it for five years and then life happens and they cancel out the policy and take the money and run. Well, I'm not sure the insurance company wants that to happen or not to happen, but in that situation the insurance company took in, let's say, $4,000 $4,000 in premiums refunded to the cash value 1000 they came out ahead. They didn't have to pay any death benefit because the client canceled it. So enough of those happened, um, and enough people keep it long enough that, again, they're not going on hope. They're not going on, man, I, I hope we're okay here. They're going on what their actuaries tell them and saying, no, we'll be okay. Keep selling policies. So it works out. I'm thankful it works out. I'm thankful they pay us and send us on these trips. But 
um, they're doing just fine, I'm sure of it. Cool. So in your mind, who's the most successful person, uh, whether you know them personally or just somebody that you uh, admire? Um, and I guess you have to define success for yourself then. Hmm. Boy, that could come in a lot of different, depends how you're defining success. Um, I guess in many ways I look at my dad as sort of an example of both success and not success. Um, he was very successful in that he had a job and, and was a teacher forever. He taught till he was almost 80. He provided for all of us. Um, he was faithful and, and, and a good man for my mom, his wife. Uh, he loved all of us. He provided for us. He was very calming. Everything he did was just very low-key, very calm. And I remember one conversation I had with him, and I said, you know, Dad, you're probably one of the most patient people I know. Have you always been that way? He goes, no, actually, I used to be really impulsive, and I used to have a really bad temper. And he read the Bible, and it talked about you shouldn't be those things. So he prayed and asked God to help him with those things. You know, and I joke with him, I go, I think you prayed too much because you were just like nothing riles you, nothing gets you upset. I mean, we as kids threw a lot of curveballs his way that um, I'm sure caused stress and gray hair. And he was always stable, always calm, and his response always would be, well, let's pray about it. So he was extremely successful in my mind in that he figured out how to live this life all with all of the stresses. He had financial stresses. He had raising five kids stresses. He had job stresses. But he figured out how to do it all and, I guess, bathe it all in prayer and and, and live that kind of an example. So um, that's probably one person that comes to mind. And probably my wife is the other one where she's had a lot, a lot of tough stuff come her way throughout her entire life. Um, you know, her mom sort of abandoned her at a very young age and where she really needed her. And without going into too much detail, she has just been through so many different things in her life that would cause a lot of people just to either become bitter or hardened. And she has kept a soft heart and she looks for the good in people. She's optimistic and she's good for me because that's not my natural bend. And I've, I've learned a lot from her and trying to keep a positive attitude through the tough stuff of life. So she's amazing in that way in that she hasn't let her heart get hard. She hasn't become bitter. And she has always been this happy, kind person who cares about others. So that's amazing to see with what she's gone through in life. Do you think she'll come on the podcast? Um, I'm sure <laughs> she could. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'd have to agree with you, Ryan. I, I think your, your wife is one of the sweetest people I've ever met and, and that I do know, but I also want our listeners, I want you to put something into context here or, or put something into their thought. Um, when you talk about success, you were, uh, you were around some extremely, successful people in your life as as the ball boy uh for the chicago bulls during their you know their reign so you know scotty pippen and you know michael jordan and, and you know uh phil knight uh, or not phil knight um oh, i forgot the coaches phil knight is or knight's the guy that runs phil nike jackson. phil jackson so you, you know some extremely what our society looks as successful people 
But those, those people didn't pop into your mind when Tucker asked you this question. Uh, talk about that. Yeah, I had a really cool opportunity, and I took advantage of it for a long time. Um, I was a ball boy for the Cavs and for the Bulls for a long time. And it was during Jordan's heyday that I was with the Bulls uh, many of those years. And I loved basketball. I love. I still love basketball. I like watching it. Um, I played it like crazy growing up. And there is such a small amount of people who can, you know, there's about less than 300 people in the world who can play professional basketball in the NBA. And you think about the staggering numbers of that. And, you know, the old joke is you can't teach height. You know, if you're seven foot two, I can't teach that. <laughs> if you are just amazingly quick and, and, you know, some of these NBA players, you look at Russell Westbrook and he can just explode off the ground and slam that ball where it looks like he was shot out of a cannon. You know, he's not seven feet. I mean, he's, he's tall by our standards, but you can't teach that explosiveness. I mean, you can improve upon it, but that's sort of a God-given, man, you have this talent that you just have obviously worked to hone, but there's some of it is just God-given. And so the, there's the Rudy stories. There, there's plenty of those. Um, you know, Steve Kerr is sort of one of those. He was on the Bulls. He, he worked himself silly into being a good shooter. He wasn't real fast. He wasn't real tall, but he worked. So there's there stories of that. But for the most part, a lot of these guys, they have the genes that they are tall or they are really quick, and then they work and hone those genes. So they're successful, and they've mastered their craft, and they get paid very well for it. Um, being successful doesn't mean that somebody, I guess, in that regards of being an NBA player a lot of them are really, really good guys, and a lot of them aren't that admirable. Um, some of them, like I said, they, they'll, they'll treat you like you would want them to be treated, and, and they're really nice. And others of them, they either don't know how to handle it or they're arrogant or they're jerks, and I don't look at that as successful. Uh, I guess I look at it as success as how you treat others and what you do for others and how you treat your family and what type of a life you lead and I grew up with my dad living and having us all live a pretty meager life as far as finances go. Uh, but that doesn't mean he wasn't successful. So he loved on people. He would give his shirt off the back for anybody. We had missionaries in our home all the time who were on furlough, and he would have them stay at our house. Uh, it, it, he, he gave, and my mom is also the same way. You know, She has the softest heart, and sometimes people take advantage of that, but she'll give to anybody if she feels they're in need. So I guess those are the more of the things I look at as success and I admire um, than the other. Not to say there, you know, there's plenty of people in the NBA who do awesome things for their community, and I admire that. Um, but that's just more from me looking at it like you would look at it as just a, a fan or, or somebody who hears about it. But the, the people close in my life and the people who impact your life on a daily basis, I think, are more impactful. So uh, this next question we uh, used to ask at our conferences, and we'd go around the room and we'd say, okay, what are you passionate about? You know, And, and all these agents would say, well, I, I'm passionate about 
uh, final expenses. I'm passionate about helping people. And we kind of shake our heads and say, okay, no, now let's start over. Once you've hit your goal and you're done working, what are you passionate about? What do you want to go do? Or um, when, when I interviewed Bill Russell, he said it a, a perfect way. He said, okay, what do you do when you're bored? What do you enjoy doing? What are you passionate about? What do I enjoy doing when I'm bored? Hmm. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think I'm passionate about a lot of things, but, you know, once I'm done with work and I've met the goal and I have the job done, whether it's teaching or selling, uh, we love going on hikes. We love being out in nature, and we do that multiple times a week. Uh, we'll drive somewhere and take the kids on a hike and just pointing out God's creation and, wow, look at that tree, look at this rock, look at that animal. We, as a family, love getting out in nature, but probably taking a bird's-eye view of that, we just love being together as a family. So whether it's hiking or playing games or, like, we just got back from a trip from California, it is so much fun laughing with the kids and seeing the funny things they do and wondering where in the world did they come up with what they just said. we were talking with Julie's uncle in California, just a quick, funny little story. And so the uncle said, oh, they're building a boat or whatever, and they named it Troublemaker. And so our youngest, our five-year-old, uh, Tate, he said, Dad, how do you spell Troublemaker? And I said, oh, that's T-A-T-E. <laughs> and, and Tate goes, wait, that's how you spell my name. <laughs> and he was just so confused, like, both of those words are spelled the same way, and I was glad he could figure out how he spelled his name, and we all laughed about it. But he goes, no, Dad, how do you really spell it? So we, we had this fun moment, just little fun, you know, uneventful moments like that. That's just one of life's daily occurrences that you laugh about and you smile about and you remember, and uh, those are the fun things. So that's what I think, to answer that question, what do I do in a border, or what fills me up, or what's my passion? It's, it's kids and in our family so that's perfect so what does goal setting look like uh for you personally you know i had a really bad view of goal setting coming into selling because you know when you're evaluated as a teacher a lot of times it's a dog and pony show where they come in and they look at you teach for 15 minutes and then they judge you your whole year based on that and that's probably oversimplified. They look at your kids' test scores and everything. There's a lot more that goes into it, but it feels that way. And they always say, you got to write three goals. And, you know, you make up these fabricated three goals that you're being forced to write that it's not going to change what I do teaching. And I had a really bad view of goals coming into this. And, you know, I would hear when I first got into the business, I'd hear Jim talk about goal setting. I'm like, oh, here we go. Goals, yeah, all right, and I'll write my three goals. But I've really changed my view on that. And, with selling, uh, do I have a goal? Absolutely. My goal every week is to hit 4,000. It's my goal. And so I've really changed my view on goal setting, and, and I don't know that I write them out um, probably as detailed as maybe Jim would, but I, I do have them. I know what I want to do for the year. I know what I want to do for the week. Uh, I, I have them all there. I'm just not as formal about it. So goal setting is important. Um, and I guess I'm the type of person that when I hit 4,000, I'm like, well, maybe I can get to five. You know? <laughs> so it's hard for me sometimes to turn it off. Um, but th- that's necessary, too, so that you can go and, and spend time with your passion, your family, and, and do the fun things. 
drive versus contentment. Uh, what drives you? What um, you you just got done teaching and you're kind of worn out. But what drives you to get out and go sell? Uh, it's probably just as simple as you know. I joke with people and I say when I'm out selling, in the back of my mind, I picture this bird's nest with four little birds that have just been hatched with their beaks open, just begging for food from their mother, you know, and that's what I have at home. I have four kids at home who need to be fed every day, and obviously it's to provide for our family, and we are more than able to provide for our family. We are able to help others, and that's Julie's passion is helping others, and so this has allowed us, you know, we just had She's amazing at that, and it's just her DNA. Um, there was a single mom in the area who was sort of going through some tough stuff, and, and Julie just decided, we're going to go make over her home. I'm like, we, we, okay, we are. You know, I've learned to just, you know, this is her passion. This is what fills her up, and when you start doing it, it fills you up too. So we rallied the troops together and people we didn't know and people we did know, and we completely transformed her home. And it was a lot of work and we did a lot of painting and we got our new carpet and just some really cool stories about how things we never thought would happen. You know, we called a carpet guy and he goes, well, you're never going to believe this. We just tore this carpet out of a million dollar home because there was a small snag on it and we were just going to throw it away. I guess we could give it to you. You just have to pay for the install installation. So we got free carpet for the single mom because her carpet was worn down, was awful. Just things like that that, it's so fun to help others. And, you know, we had a, a friend of Grace's mom just tragically passed away, like out of the blue. Um, she was sick, uh, went septic and died. And so Julie started a fundraiser for her because the family had nothing and to help pay for the funeral and started to go fund me for her, got the word out of there and we, we raised enough money. People were generous to, to help pay for the funeral. And now this dad has to raise two kids all by himself. And the mom was the, lifeblood of that family. This is Julie. She sees a need and she tackles it. So this business has provided not only just us to be able to help our family, which feed the kids, but to help others too. So the flip side of that, uh, what brings you contentment? And I think you kind of answered it in, in your previous answer is that, that helping people, but is there anything else that gives you contentment? Um, you know, that's, like I said, Julie's really good for me and she's really good at that. Uh, I probably get more, um, worked up about contentment, you know, always next week, am I going to make a sale? You know, and I've been doing it for 10 years and I've never gone a week and not had a sale. So you would think that that track record would give you comfort and it does and give you confidence, but I think that also that fear is also what drives you. So contentment is a double-edged sword because I feel like if I get content in this business, I probably won't be successful. Um, but then being content to say there also is a stopping point. There, there is a point where you got to stay balance. You can't devote 100% of your life to teaching. You have to give some to your family. You can't devote 100% of your life to selling. You, so that balance, but contentment for me is a tough one because I, my, I guess I would say my mind is always going as far as, you know, 
what's next week's going to look like? What can they do to better that? How am I going to, you know, trying to get that to settle down is my struggle. That's a perfect segue, though, um, because you've been amazingly successful. Um, do you still have the elation when you hit your goal, or is it just expected from week to week? Oh, no, there's there's elation um, for sure. You know, like yesterday when we called Jim Molly, you can hit your goal in one day, and by Jim Molly, I was, you know, awesome. You know, so Logan and I have this thing, you know, hey, Jim Molly, the weekend starts now, you know, all of those little phrases that you can use to encourage you to learn to get excited and to hit your goal. But, um, yeah, there's there's definitely excitement for it because there's plenty of weeks where, you know, you work two days and you're going, man, I just got to 3,000. This was a rough week. And the, it, it just makes the, the success all the sweeter because you know the, how hard it is the weeks that you really do struggle. I know, Ryan, when Tucker asked me that question, I, I said, are you kidding me? After 29 years, I'm still extremely elated because uh, what you just said is the process. And, of course, we probably do this to ourselves. I'm I'm guilty of what you just said. Is I, I sit around right now thinking, oh, man, what's next week going to be like? You know, I've done it for 29 years, and like I said, I've never been skunked. Um, I ha- haven't hit my goal every week, but I have probably for the past 20 years, and I still get concerned about that. So, yeah, the elation that I feel – when I hit my goal is, you know, if you were in my car or in my mind, I mean, the, the rockets are going off, the, the fireworks are blasting. It's like, thank God I did it another week. And, and I don't know why, but it's just something that it, it's just so difficult. This business is so difficult for so many weeks of the year that when you have that amazing, when you do the, you know, the one and done, uh, it is fun. But when you work your butt off and finally hit that goal after two days, it's like, Wow. You know, and then the drive home is so fun. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I, I wrote this couple yesterday, and I walked out of the house, and you wrote him for $90, her for $60, and I just thought, there's this huge weight that just fell off my shoulders. Because, um, you know, three-fourths of the way through my day, and that got me back on track, and, and I was like, I'm going to get this. And you walk a little quicker, a little easier, a little, you know, chin's a little higher, and you're going back. This is great. This is great. And there, there's also the days where you're out from nine in the morning till two, and you got nothing, and you go in this business. Thinks, I'm not good at this. What is going on? These people. Am I? You know, you're just ready to kick every dog that comes your way. And you know, you know, in the beginning of this business, and I feel like on every conference call, I used to say, "Well, but the next house is going to buy. The next house is going to buy." And, and that's really the mindset I have to have is that. If I am skunked from 9 in the morning till 2, well, guess what? My 3 o'clock, they're going to buy. And you have to have that attitude of what the next one is. Because not every house buys, and not every house doesn't buy. But sometimes they string together where it feels that way. So I guess that's the ebbs and flows and, and saying, well, I just got five no's out of the way. There's a couple of yeses coming. Do you have um, a particular war story of a... Maybe a, a scary house or roaches on the wall or something like that that you can share with us. Oh yeah, you know, probably way back I was training my wife Julie, and we went into this home, and literally, what you said, there were roaches on the wall. They crawled across apparently my foot, and I didn't see it. And Julie was just sitting there getting creeped out. Well, then there's this little tiny baby just in a diaper. It was winter. The house wasn't heated real well. Both 
the, the nose of the baby was just running nonstop, just all down its face. It, it was horrible to see that this little baby was being raised in the situation. The mom was on oxygen, just got out of the hospital, and so I'm trying to write the husband and wife and sort of show Julie the business. And then the son of the couple comes in, and he must have been strung out on something because he's, he's being obnoxious, and the dad goes in and says, we have care. and all of a sudden the son starts beating up the dad in the kitchen. And the dad is a skinny little guy, and the son towered over him. And so the son is working over his father in the kitchen. Well, the mom slowly gets up, oxygen tank behind her, wheels in there, and she's just ever slow. And then she yelled, and both of them stood at attention, stopped fighting, and she just went off on them. Didn't touch them, didn't do anything, but the mom was the leader of that family. And when she spoke, the husband hit. And I just looked at Julie, and I'm like, whoa. I, I couldn't believe that she was able to get them there because they were just going at each other. Well, I ended up selling both of them, but we walked out of there, and Julie's like, you're not bringing that bag in our house. You are not bringing that bag in our house. <laughs> <laughs> she was sure I brought home a couple friends, and we were changing clothes before we get to the house. So there's more stories like that. There, you know, I, I hate telling those stories because you know, people are going to think, that's every house. It's not. You were all going to get those, but uh, that's one of the worst stories. Uh, probably my other worst story that was hardest for me is I went into a house, and this guy had cats. He lived in a below-ground apartment, and he had cats everywhere. And where the carpet met the baseboard, you couldn't tell the difference because there was cat hair just as a as a ramp all over every single baseboard. And... It smelled of vinegar so bad my eyes were watering and my nose was running. I don't think that's vinegar. And them, well, it was, yeah, it was cat pee or whatever it was. But as soon as I got out of there, it was winter, and I drove to my next appointment with my windows down, freezing, just trying to get fresh air all over me and get my eyes to stop watering. It was, that was a rough house. Uh, I love it. Um, okay, so uh, what... What do you say if uh, one of your kids grows up and says, hey, Dad, I want to do what you do, whether it's teaching or selling, either way, but uh, how do you respond to them? That is a great question. You know, my dad was a teacher and I became a teacher. Was it because of that? Uh, I don't know. Um, you know, Tucker, your dad sells insurance, you sell insurance. Was it because of that? Probably. <laughs> um I would not discourage any of my kids from it. Um I guess I would say I want my kids to find something they're passionate about and they enjoy doing and do it. You know, there's a flip side to that. You know, what if they enjoy making pottery? That's great. I'm not sure you're going to make a living from it. If you can, great. And so maybe that's your hobby that you do on the side. But it's that balance between saying we need to provide for the family, but I also want you to be good at your job and enjoy your job. So where all of those three things come together and can form a career, um, I hope they can find something that has all three of those, that, that provides for their family, that they love doing, and that they're good at. Ryan, you have three boys and a girl, correct? That's right. Um, just as you were talking about that, when you talk about passionate and things like that, um, I have a boy and a girl, and, and this is interesting because I can always say, you know, I can teach my son to be a good father and a good husband, 
but the gentleman that marries my daughter, hopefully someday, um, how do you, do you do you and Julie pray about and think about who's going to marry your daughter and what kind of life they will provide for them and how you will be involved in that? Something that, I mean, Maddie's not married yet. She's been dating a gentleman for about two and a half years. Um, he fits the mold pretty well. He fits the puzzle pieces pretty well, but, you know, there's still that unknown. Do you guys think about that and talk about that? Yeah, we do. We're we're probably on the the front end side of that. Our daughter's 11, so we're hoping that's a long way off. But <laughs> um, yeah, I think about it with my sons too, and I, and I think about you know, I, I hope they're observant and see that I work hard, that I love our family, and um, that that is instilled in them just by being around it, I guess, because it was with my mom and dad. Uh, but I want my sons to be really good dads and really good husbands and to be hard workers. And for my daughter, I want her to marry somebody who is of that same, you know, mold that is going to love her and treat her right and, you know, put God first in their lives. Um, so, I don't know that I separated too much between my my sons and, and my daughter um, because I think they're both equally important in that it's always a little more sensitive when you speak of your daughter because, you know, we guys can be real jerks and a guy has a, a really unique opportunity that he can cause a lot of hurt for a woman. And not to say that it can't go the other way, but you, you, you tend to hold your daughters and say, no, this is my daughter. <laughs> don't you dare hurt her. Um, but I don't want my son to be the guy who's hurting some other girl as well. So it, it's a two-way street, and, yeah, we, we definitely think about that and pray about that and are hoping that they're developing the habits and the characters that they'll choose good people and be the good people. But we we are all human and need second chances, and... Um, as long as they're willing to learn from their mistakes and continue to, I guess, try to be better, that's, that's all I could ask of them. So um, we, we've we got a few um, teachers turned salesmen, um, and we talk about this, this theory of education-based selling. Um, why do you think it is that, that teachers – tend to be good salespeople and um, how have you put this into your business where instead of selling um, with, you know, air quotes around selling, you're, you're teaching the clients about what they're buying. Yeah. I would have never connected the two. Um, you know, Jim said that, and that's the first I've ever heard that. And he says it often. And uh, it, I, the more he said it, the, the more it made sense to me because you know, in selling, are we teaching, or in teaching, are we selling? Well, whichever way you want to look at it, they're probably both true. You know, to my students, I'm selling them math. We'll call it education. We'll call it teaching. But really, I'm trying to get them to buy in, uh, both with their effort and with their attention and with a little passion. I'm trying to get them to buy in and be excited about math and to learn what this is all about. So really, that that's the art of selling there is, is trying to educate somebody or convince somebody of the importance of something or what they didn't know to now what they do know. And selling is the same way. Uh, you're trying to meet a need, and these people have a need, and, and some people don't, and you won't hit everyone, but um, 
I, I guess whether you want to call it educational selling or selling or educating or meeting a need, that's, I guess, the art to it with both jobs is trying to connect with that other person in a way that they're going to say, yeah, I need this, um, whether it's math or whether it's life insurance. It, and just to feed off of that, we, we have to ask some sensitive questions in the homes. And I find myself, even in just everyday life, if I need to ask somebody for something or a, a certain question, I'll, I'll say, you know, if you don't mind me asking, and then follow up with my question. And I don't think I ever would have done that before I started selling insurance. But um, how how do you... Um, perfect your your art of asking questions, whether it's in the house or, or everyday life? Um, you know, with selling, I, I think when the people, Jim says that all the time, these, these people might not be rich and they might not be the most educated, but they read people. They know people well. And that always stuck with me. And it's their people sense, their street cred, if you want to call it that, is really, really high usually. And so I legitimately do care about all of our clients, and uh, I'm wanting to help them. So I think they can see that. I hope they can see that and empathize, that I empathize with them. And, you know, you hear the war stories from the clients, and you hear them every day, and it's um, sort of a little bit of work to not get jaded in that and say, man, I've heard this story a 100 times, but to put yourself in their shoes and say, this was a huge event for them. This really made an impact on them, and they're really struggling with this. And I can take five minutes here and, and, and hear them and maybe be the only person who gives them an ear all day. And, and, and you don't do that so you get the sale. You do that, I think, because you're human and you care about somebody else. But it certainly helps them know that you're human also and you're there to help them. And so it's a, it's a win-win um, in that you're building trust and you're meeting a need in them both maybe emotionally and then financially at the end. Um, but I, I think that plays a big part into it. As far as how I ask questions outside of selling, I'm probably still learning on that because um, I'm probably more of a bull in the china shop and, and Julie is more um, – she, she's a lot better at – I'm always amazed at how she can get our kids to do things just by how she phrases things or how she, you know, I'm the type of person, no, you do it because I say you do it, and, and that doesn't work hardly ever. And I've learned from her there's an art to it. And so she's really, really good at that, and I'm, I'm getting better just having watched and learned from her. Do you have a, a favorite failure? And by that, I mean something where, you know, maybe at the time you were, you shook your head and said, man, I can't believe I did that. And now looking back on it, you went, oh, wow, I'm, I'm glad that I failed at X because it led to something greater. Hmm. I got to think about that one. <laughs> how, many, how many, right? <laughs> <laughs> there are plenty to choose from. <laughs> Um, yeah, you know, I, I guess I would maybe just pan out from that and say, you know, Julie and I have this phrase we say a lot that God is way out ahead of us. And whether it's a little thing or a big thing, if, if something doesn't go your way or 
man, there's a couple examples I can't bring to my mind right now, but just the idea that, well, yeah, that didn't work out, but maybe there's a reason for that. And then you find out two weeks later, oh, oh, that's what, and my mind is blank right now because we, Julie and I talk about this quite often, but just that idea of, you know, things happen for a reason, and sometimes God closes the door or says, wait, and you don't see why right away, but in the end, it is for the betterment of it. And I, I'm never going to like that we lost everything and that we lost sort of our dream home. Um, I don't know that I'll ever be glad that happened because it was it was hard. And it was really hard seeing my kids sick. And that one still tears me apart. Um, but so much good has come out of that. And I think I am much more... Uh, able to step in and help others because we learn going through that process. People legitimately say, oh, man, this is awful what you're going through. Let me know how I can help. And they really mean it. But I'm never going to call that person and say, here's how I need help. And that's, that's, I think, most of us. And so Julie and I have sort of learned when we see a need, instead of saying, oh, let me know if I can help you, give me a call. Because the person's never going to call. They need somebody to sort of just jump in and say, here's how I'm going to help. And so the good that's come out of that is that I think we're much more intentional in helping others and seeing a need and just acting on it. Um, So that's been really good of that. I I wish I could have learned that not having gone through all this, but (laughs) here we are. (laughs) So this is probably going to seem like a left turn here, but, um, it, it's interesting. We, we already, uh, interviewed Logan and hearing you guys talk about your dad, he was a great man of faith and both you and Logan have a, a great, uh, faith life. How, how are you instilling this in your children? Cause I mean, I watched, many of my friends who I thought had, you know, their families were trying to instill those in them and they, and they are gone off the rails. And I, I don't want that in my kids. You know, I want them to continue on the path and I don't want to, you know, force them to do something they don't want to do, but I I want them to encourage their, their faith, um, journey. So how, how do you think about that? Yeah, that's uh, probably what I want more in this life than anything is for my kids to um, know God and and know how much they're loved by God and to love others because of how much God loves them. Um, And, you know, seeing some of, you know, as you said, your friends or different people who grew up with the same background, so to speak, you grew up in the church or grew up with that belief and, and walked away from it. That's really hard um, because you, you you don't want your kids to, to walk down that path. But in reality, some of them might, and it, it might be a bumpy road. You know, the saying that God only has children. He doesn't have grandchildren. Uh, I, I like and I hate that phrase <laughs> because I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up with, you know, my, my parents living it out and having it be impactful in their lives and, and really the heart of their lives. But at some point, I had to make it my own. And I had to just not say, well, my parents were a Christian, therefore I'm a Christian. No, is, is this what is important to me? Is, is this a, 
the the lifeblood of me? Is this what makes me tick? And for me, it, it's a no-brainer. If if there's not God, then what's the point? You know, get the most, get the happiest, get the. It, it all just seems meaningless. But with God, the hard things in this life are doable. Not easy, but doable. And, you know, another verse I sort of like and don't like all at the same time, it says, in this life, you will have trouble. And that's not just for Christians. It's not for non-Christians. It's for humans. And it's sort of a depressing first half of the verse. It says, in this life, you will have trouble. But the rest of it goes, but take heart, because I have overcome the world. And, man, having that kind of person, God, in your corner, boy, talk about taking the weight off of your shoulders. You know, I I put a lot of my own burdens on me, and and probably more than I should. But knowing that God, in the end, has me and loves me, what more do I need? So I, I hope my kids get to a point in their lives where they they get that, they see that, and they can rest in that. Um, and if they have that, awesome. Everything else is gravy. So this next question usually throws people for a loop, but uh, we'll try it anyway. Um, if you're living your ideal future, you're old and gray and retired and no worries left in life, and you could look back on yourself right now and give you yourself one piece of advice, what do you think that would be? Hmm. My immediate answer is probably uh, worry less. Um, but as I sort of mentioned before, uh, I think that's what partially drives me. Uh, I think that pressure um, is what pushes me to do the next thing. So maybe that's a necessary evil of of my DNA, of my makeup, of what I need to keep putting one foot in front of the other and and working really hard. Um, But that's a tough one because I, you know, I I think life is so unpredictable in so many ways that I I don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. And if I look back over my life, what's already happened Never in a million years would have I ever thought that so much of my life has been my story, but it happened. So I don't know what's going to come. I, I, I don't. Um, but I, I know God's there to help us through it, whether good or bad. We'll take it one step further. And if you could go back to your, let's say, 30-year-old self and place us where we're yet 30, what uh, advice would you give yourself at 30 years old? Should have bought Microsoft stock. (laughs) And Apple. (laughs) And Apple. And, 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 and. (laughs) Uh, You know, again, I I think that's a tough one. I don't put a lot of headspace too much of that um, because if we could go back and die, we would have bought Apple stock. We would have bought Microsoft stock. But didn't have any money. Who had money? Right. Yeah, I didn't have any money. I was paying for school. (laughs) Um, Hindsight's 2020 in. I didn't have that information at that time. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know that I spent a whole lot of time saying, man, if only or would I, should I. I think my my mom once said to me, you know, Ryan, I think your dad and I did a lot wrong as parents. And 
I said, what are you talking about? She goes, oh, I just think there's things we could have done better and, you know, things where we maybe didn't meet this need. And I go, Mom, you guys did amazing, and you did the best you could with the information you had at that time. I go, it's not fair to judge you under today's knowledge of, well, we know this is good, and that's not, you didn't have that back then. And, you know, our kids are going to judge us based on, the knowledge of the day when they're adults that we didn't have today. And I hope they give us grace because I'm sure we're doing a lot wrong. So. All right. Well, we're almost done. I got a few quick draw questions here. Um, your answers don't have to be quick, but uh, I'll rattle them off here. What's one uh, experience that you believe everyone should try at least once? Hmm. Scuba diving. Well, that's a, that's a good one. No, I've never been scuba diving. Well, that's right. That's Logan. Um, Logan does all the diving, doesn't he? That's Logan. Something you should do once. Um, I love backpacking, so I think everybody should backpack once. And they'll either tell them they love it or they should never do it again. How far for how long? I mean, I, I could do the day um, packing. I'm not going out there for a week and sleep on rocks. Yeah, we usually did the week thing where you're carrying everything and filtering your water, but uh, that's been a few years. So I don't know that my body's uh, able to handle a week of it, but I'll say backpacking. Are there any books that you've read multiple times, or is there a book you find gifting often or you know, telling people, hey, you got to read such and such? You know, my family teases me because I am not a reader. Um I'll listen to it, but my I have a hardest time reading because when I'm reading, my mind wanders. And I'll have read three pages and have no idea what I just read because my mind is on to the next thing. What am I going to do? What's selling? The... So I really have a hard time shutting everything else out and reading. Having said that, obviously the Bible is by far the, the most important book. Um, another book that I read that I tell my students about is the one by Ben Carson called uh, Think Big. And it just shows the shift he made in his life with respect to education that made him a really good student after having been a really bad student. So it's just a shift in how he learned things. And, and that was a pretty uh, – that, that's a book I share with my students. We talked about apple cider vinegar. Do you have any specific morning rituals um, that you do every day? Um, coffee is probably my big one. I am not a morning person. Um, this year our school starts at seven ten in the morning and I like to get there by six. So I'm up pretty early on school days, but, uh, people think I'm a morning person, but I'm like, no, it just takes me that long to wake up. So, uh, coffee is, is my morning ritual and yeah, I'm thankful for coffee. Do you, specific do you make it buy it starbucks uh or do you make it at home if i'm teaching i just buy it on the way to school at starbucks uh if i'm selling or, or home we just make it here at home i gotta ask a little more about the apple cider vinegar because like i told you last night i had some and i was talking with my wife and i said okay now when you take this does it feel like something's attacking your body like i get like goosebumps and like uh, 20 minutes later i'm still like sweating and Shouldn't i'm be there like you're you just poisoned yourself or something <laughs> does this happen to you uh you know i'm not a big drinker um uh, julie and i might have a glass of wine once a month and that's really the extent of my drinking i've, I've never 
been into that seed. It's just not been uh, something we've done. But I guess I picture taking apple cider vinegar being similar to what I see on people's faces if they take a shot of whiskey or something. Uh, I don't know what that's like. I don't know. I've never done a shot. But, yes, that feeling of what did I just put in my body and, oh, my gosh, that taste is awful. And Julie's gotten so good, she just she, – you know, she's done making the silly faces. She's used to it. But I, I, I still have to cringe and get it down and chase it with water. But it's, it's yeah, it's rough. <laughs> do you, how about evening before bed? Do you have any other rituals or things that you do every night before you turn out the light? You know, it's interesting. I've been, the last six months, every night I make this weird concoction of hot tea that is, Cinnamon, honey, turmeric, um, nutmeg, and there might be one other thing. Uh, and you mix it all and put hot water in it, and that's been my staple every night before bed is that I make this medicinal hot tea. Because uh, we were reading up in, in this this person, health food person, we she said, if you're ever feeling sick, do this. And I'm like, well, I'm going to do it when I'm not feeling sick. And Helps with inflammation, helps with this, and so that's been my ritual: this turmeric, cinnamon, honey, nutmeg tea. Well, and you guys live in Colorado too, so that's uh, just a hotbed of <laughs> of health. Um, and, I mean, <laughs> among other things, just walking around the people, uh, their health, you know, kind of rubs off on you. So, yeah, we we used to pride ourselves on being one of the healthiest states in the nation. Every time whoever put out that list, put out that list, but. You know, ever since they legalized marijuana, we've seen a huge influx of people moving here <laughs> that aren't that for healthy, that yeah. reason. And yeah, here we are. <laughs> Do you have any quotes or sayings or mantras or anything that you keep around as a constant reminder? Uh, you know, uh, the quote Julie and I have this little ritual. We'll she'll write something on a whiteboard and put it on my side of the bathroom, and then I'll erase it and write something. But she often has really cool quotes in there. And the quote she has now that has really stuck with us is um, by, I always want to say Jackie Chan, but that's the actor. It's Francis Chan. He's a, a pastor out in San Francisco, I think. But his quote is, we shouldn't be afraid of failing. We should be afraid of succeeding at things that really don't matter. And that one really has stuck with us, uh, again, about being intentional and in, in helping people. And, and, you know, we all have to have a job. We all have to make money. And so there, there's a purpose to that. But just keeping in mind, are we being successful at things that really don't matter? So that, that's that's been a really good one that we've been tossing around lately. What are one to two things that people can do or change in their lives in the next week or two that would have a drastic impact on them? Well, Jim would probably be a better one for this because he, um, uh, I guess I'll just steal from Jim, is that, you know, with your goal-setting talks, you know, uh, it's easy to sit there and say, well, here's 100 things I could do to make my life better. And in reality, you're not going to change 100 things. It's just too overwhelming. But find one thing, whatever it is, whether it's your health, your fitness, your, you know, praying, reading the Bible, um, you know, putting away the phone and spending five quality minutes with, with somebody, whatever it is, pick something and just do that and make that a habit and then pick the next thing. So I don't know that I have 
any great words of wisdom as far as what that thing is, but we all have the things we can improve upon. And so find that one thing and do that one thing. Do you have any uh, podcasts, resources, websites, anything that uh, are part of your weekly rituals that you always go back to? Um, hmm. No, not a whole lot. I, if, if I'm wanting to be challenged, I guess I uh, dial up a, a guy named Ravi Zacharias. Um, he, he's a, a Christian speaker who just, all men were not created equal because his mind is just way beyond what uh, I, I think is possible. But he really gets me to think in a different way and, and just frames things differently to get me to think um I guess it strengthened my faith or, or, you know, better my faith, but I, I enjoy listening to him. Logan talked about him, and, and he said you have uh, met him personally. Is that correct? Yeah, a couple of times. Uh, he um, he travels the world speaking, but, um, yeah, most of the things I, I just log onto his website and listen to a few of his things, and it's, they're pretty powerful. He's really good. Do you have any uh, – are you on social media? Where can people find you? We try to be very, very not on social media. <laughs> um, Good call. Yeah, I don't have a Instagram or Twitter or I don't even know what all Snapchat all those. We we have a Facebook, but we don't even use our real names. So, <laughs> oh, and that could be interesting. Well, no, we, we use our, we don't you know everybody used for Facebook uses our first and last name, but we just hate being out there that much. Like, is there any privacy anymore? So. My Facebook is my first name and then just a couple of letters, but, um, and, and Julie's is the same way. So it's, you, you won't find us if you're searching for us because it's, it's pretty incognito and we really only do it to see what family throughout the country is doing and see their pictures. So it's, it's just basically a online scrapbook to see, Hey, how's uncle Bob doing? So. All right. I got one more question, but before that one, do you have any, anything else you want to add or, or, uh, tell tell our listeners about no i mean if, if somebody's thinking about this business it's is it hard work yes is it challenging yes is it rewarding oh yes and you know i, I try to thank jim all the time because he gave me a chance in this business and, and he let me try this part-time um, and he's supported us through this he's answered questions he's worked hard to give us good contracts and good companies and He's really set the table for us to be successful. We still have to go out and do the work, but he's made it really, really easy to be trained, to have your questions answered, to have community. So, you know, I, I can never thank Jim Ma enough for all that he has done for my personal family and my extended family and, and just making this business possible. He's, he's put in countless hours to fine-tune this and. I come along and, and benefit from all of his experience. So uh, I, I feel extremely lucky, and, and I can't say enough about how doable he makes this with all of the resources. So kudos yeah. to Jim. He's and you do, you do thank me quite often, and I appreciate that. But the statement you made, though, Ryan, is so true, is we set the table, but you still have to do the work. And, and that's something that you do, so all of you, you and, and – uh, Logan and Tanya, I, I'm always impressed with the Schellenberger people. I wish I could find a hundred of you, but uh, you made a great statement that uh, we, we 
we create a great opportunity, but not everybody takes it to the levels you guys have. And, and your work ethic is is second to none. And as you were talking about your children, and and uh, you know, as we worry about our children and things like that, that they do watch a lot what we do, uh, and, and thank God that they do. And, and your children are learning some great things from you and Julie. So, you know, you're welcome, but also thank you for what you bring to our group too. Well, thank you. That being said, what would you like for your personal legacy to be? Um, you know, probably pretty simple, um, that I love God, uh, and that I love my wife and I love my kids and that's about it. That's all we can ask for. Thanks so much for taking the time uh, to be on here with us. Yeah. Thank you. Appreciate it. Your arms got to be tired from holding the phone for 90 minutes, right? (laughs) I warned you. I said, bring your headset. We don't have those fancy. fancy every every one of your here. iPhone, every one of your iPhones comes with a headset. <laughs> uh, never used it. <laughs> tell tell Julie she's going to be in the hot seat before too long. I'll call her up and we'll get some get some time arranged for her. She would be a good one. She's yeah, she will. like I said, amazing. So, well, thank you so much, Ryan. Sounds great. This thanks. Awesome. Good job. All right. Thanks, guys. See you. Have a good day. Stop by oneanddonetraining.com. That's the number one, A-N-D-D-O-N-E, training.com. There you'll find our blog, media library, and ongoing training to help with your final expense career. Thanks. We'll see you there.